Welcome back to another episode of Sustainability and the Sea, where we talk about all things saving our ocean. Hosted by me, Alex Filardo, and my partner, Carissa Cabrera, who are both marine biologists and eco-communicators. This podcast is made by ocean people for ocean people, and each episode focuses on a different way to help the ocean, because marine conservation is for everybody. Today, we're focusing on policy action, which is why we're sitting down with Anita Harrington, a marine scientist now working in Washington, D.C., the biggest policy stage in the world. Anita has done research with great white sharks, whales, and box jellyfish, and is currently a Knauss Fellow working in science applications program focusing on collaborative conservation. If you've ever wondered how policy surrounding environmental issues actually works, this is the episode for you. So thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Sustainability and the Sea. dive into our conversation, we just want to say a little disclaimer that um, Anita's views don't represent Sea Grant or U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, although she is working with them and we'll be talking about some topics related to the work that she does. Um, but yeah, other than that, let's just dive right in. Okay, so we start every single episode. We ask all of our guests this question. Um, I feel like I might know the answer to yours, but what is your favorite way to experience the ocean? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you two can definitely relate, but I would have to go with surfing <laughs> because that's uh, my first, my first experience with the ocean. I, I think would be surfing like with my dad when I was young. So oh. yeah. How long has it been since you've gone? Cause Anita's in Washington DC right now. I think um, New Year's day maybe was the last oh my goodness. day when I was still in Hawaii. So for reference, this episode was recorded in June, so yeah, a long time. I don't know how you're doing time. it. I would have gone crazy by now. <laughs> My heart just broke. <laughs> um, okay, so tell us a bit about your background and like, I guess your upbringing, where you're from, and like, were you always a science person or did you come to it later in your upbringing? Uh, just share a little bit about that. I definitely was... Uh, always a science person I'd say like a science nerd as a child (laughs) Um, but I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up right pretty much as in front of the Great Swamp Wildlife Refuge which is a major huge area in New Jersey um, that I was able to experience nature that way growing up and also um, along the Jersey Shore during the summer I would spend all my time in the ocean and then I attended the University of North Carolina where I studied oceanography and marine biology that uh, kind of led me to grad school, I guess. I took a year off because I needed a little bit of a break. Fair. (laughs) Traveled a bit, went to New Zealand, got to experience some new oceans. So I would definitely recommend that for anyone who's kind of in that gap phase between uh, grad school and undergrad. But yeah, then I made it to Hawaii where I was able to meet you two. And Mm. Um, that was something that I always knew that I wanted to do was live there or go to school there. Um, I was just always really enticed by the island. I'm definitely glad that the path led me where it did. And I wasn't sure if I would end up working in like for a government agency, but that's kind of the opportunity that opened itself up to me. And just, I took it and ran with it. (laughs) You took it and ran and moved across the country. (laughs) Um, Do you have like something that sticks out to you about like a project you did in high school or even in undergrad when you were in North Carolina about um, that was, you were able to really like connect with the ocean or study it in some way? 
Yeah, so during my time at uh, University of North Carolina Wilmington, I received the um, Halling Scholarship, which is a NOAA-funded scholarship and internship. So for wow. one summer, I was able to go to Santa Barbara, California, and study oh, cool. and work as a research intern for the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary. And I was able to participate in research projects like um, a tracking great uh, white sharks and uh, doing some aerial surveys looking for whales and just sit in on like stakeholder meetings with the community and uh, the fishermen and kind of hear those types of like conversations when they're dealing with these like climate change issues and issues that dealt with um, the Channel Islands there. So that was when I was like, oh, I want to like get into like this type of space, like working nice. on these really like multidimensional projects that involve all these different types of groups and just problem solving with a team I found really rewarding so yeah that was great I loved it <laughs> people from a lot of different backgrounds I want to go to the Channel Islands so badly I feel like yeah. it's amazing and like yeah, all the white sharks and they just have so much food <laughs> there with the seals <laughs> oh, yeah <poor> seals. <laughs> Uh, okay, I, did, I had no idea you spent some time in Santa Barbara. I went there recently and I fell in love with it. What a cute small town. Yeah, that's the dream. I would love to live there one day. <laughs> yeah, one day. So, okay, you came here and we met and I'm so happy that we did. But you, were, you weren't really working in um, that type of diverse setting with many different groups during your graduate research in um, Hawaii, right? What Could you tell us a little bit about what you studied here? So... That was the part that I thought was definitely lacking, I would say, from mm -hmm. my thesis. But what I did like about it is the kind of mystery that the species I was studying kind of brought about. It really like drew me in. So the very short, like simplified summary of a very complicated and difficult project is that there's a box jellyfish um, in Hawaii that shows up eight to 10, eight to 12 days after the full moon along Waikiki Beach. And obviously this is a huge tourist destination. So it ends up in multiple sting events and, and their stings are brutal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you got stung? I have not, but my advisor Dave did, and he had a huge scar on his face for like months and <laughs> kind I of heard funny, they're gnarly. I was kind of I kind of assumed you'd be able to you would end up getting stung at some point. I know point we all thought it. <laughs> didn't. I know everybody hoped that I would get stung. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually, I somehow avoided it. Maybe it was because I was wearing like this wetsuit and these pants and I was completely covered up. I looked like pretty insane. Um, <laughs> Smart but, though. Yeah. yeah. So Better I, safe I, I sorry. would collect these. Yeah. <laughs> I would collect the jellyfish along Waikiki and sequence their DNA, and then I was comparing it to um, the what we thought was the same species that was found in Australia, in the, around the Mariana Islands, and in the Caribbean in Bonaire. So why was there the same species that was separated by like these continental barriers and these oceanographic barriers? Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening is that when I looked, was looking at the comparison of the DNA, they were all nearly identical. And that's just not a natural pattern that you would see for naturally distributed species around the ocean having identical DNA. So yeah. what that what the conclusion was from there is that this is likely a species that was introduced by humans to either Hawaii or other areas within the Pacific from the Atlantic. And that's why 
they are so genetically similar because not enough time had gone by for them to have genetic diversity between the different locations, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's crazy. And obviously it's humans that are transporting these animals and introducing new species. So is that through like ballast water? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ballast water is a big one for commercial vessels and hull fouling, like just their polyp form is really um, like stable in in extreme temperatures. So it could kind of be stuck onto the hull of a ship possibly. Mm -hmm. That's like another possible method. And I'm sure there's plenty others that we don't even haven't really even thought of yet. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I bet. So it's some really amazing research came out um, this week or not research. You just your research had coverage this week. And and what were the findings that finally made it to the general public? Yeah, so it was really exciting because kind of as side projects to my thesis, I was also working with these other scientists to sequence the DNA of these hydromedusins, hydrozoans actually, who uh, are in Japan and they kind of wanted to do a speciation study to look at different populations of the species. And what happened was they took this um, hydrozoan from Japan and I was sequencing it and it had been in an aquarium for like 20 years. And they were like, we know what this is called, like this has been around for a while. And then when we, my advisor and I sequenced the DNA and analyzed it, we found out it was actually a new species entirely that hadn't been um, discovered or named before. So we were able to announce the news today. Yeah, it's just an accidental discovery, which happens a lot, I think. You (laughs) discovered a new species. We know someone who discovered a new species. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird because obviously it wasn't something that I ever thought would come of like just casually like long hours in the lab like I don't even know what is this I didn't even really look at it I was just sequencing the DNA and then all of a sudden it was like oh wow something happened (laughs) that's awesome so you've worked with white sharks you said you did aerial surveys with with whales you your master's research was focused on jellyfish but now you're you're in DC and you're you're working on something completely different can you Tell us a little bit about the bridge between like those two chapters. Yeah, so I guess that experience I had at the Channel Islands really is kind of what made me seek out this fellowship experience. Um, It's a marine policy fellowship um, called the Canal Fellowship and basically uh, different sea grant offices around the country send finalists to Washington, D.C., where they work in different congressional offices. They work for senators or they work in the executive branch. And that's where I am. And so I am, I've been placed within the Department of the Interior in the Bureau, which is the Fish and Wildlife Service. And then from there, I'm in the program called Science Applications, which focuses on collaborative conservation. And so it's a cool space to be in because you're seeing everything from like a level that you were never able to see when you're like working in a lab or working in a university and kind of caught up in your own research. It's just like zoomed back and now you're like all the way at the kind of balcony looking at everything that's happening in a way you're like at the highest level of those that that groups that you were originally attracted to in the channel islands like because are there what are there hundreds of people in these um collaborative meetings not so much hundreds the science applications program is like the smallest of all the fish and wildlife service programs so you're probably familiar with like ecological services who uh, works on the endangered species act and then you have 
refuges who uh, run all the national wildlife refuges around the country, but Science Applications is a new program and it's small, but since it's working with partners throughout, um, we have kind of been tasked with working on climate change because it makes sense since we're working with everyone. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pressing issue right now, so. Yeah, and it affects everyone. Science Applications are, um, I mean, that's kind of one of the driving forces behind us making this podcast is we want the information that researchers find like you to be applied and at least communicated to other people. So what kind of things do you work on within your program and I guess within your committee and uh, yeah, like what re has really excited you about the opportunities you've gotten um, in the fellowship? Yeah, I think overall the most exciting thing is working with a group that all kind of shares the same mission um, and just overall like they hold the same things important as like we all do like mm -hmm. they were all got into it because they care about habitat and species conservation it's not like there's any other motive so working on like a team like that has been like super super rewarding basically it's it's hard to say what we're working on yeah. <laughs> at the moment just because <laughs> Everything is so, so new. It's like, as soon as I joined, we just hit the ground running. We got those executive orders from the Biden administration right before I joined. And it calls for like an all hands on deck approach to climate change. So it's like, okay, what are we doing? What can we do? Mm -hmm. We have to pretty much revamp everything because, you know, during the former administration, there are certain words that we weren't even allowed to say in regard to climate change so it's all about like how do we communicate it now mm -hmm. let's get wow. back on the same track as we were in 2016 so mm -hmm. this is a story that i've been getting from everyone else as like someone who just joined in it's very exciting wow you're at the forefront of it yeah so the climate change program for the fish and wildlife service is just getting like off the ground now and so that's a lot of meetings and it's a lot of you know, jumping from back and forth, taking notes, trying to organize everything. We have a lot of short deadlines. It's not like it's a bottom-up approach, but it's it's like you are, these meetings are paving the way for the rest of the administration's um, climate change pathway, right? Yeah. And it's also making sure everyone's on the same page. I think sometimes people may have gotten comfortable and like they were doing things and it's hard to kind of change everything um, mm -hmm. so quickly. So there's definitely a lot of like scheduling and like trainings, making sure that every scientist is integrating climate change into their work. Yeah, yeah, I would say it's coming down from headquarters, but the field staff and the regional staff has already been doing a lot of that work all along too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like making sure everyone's on the same page, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you um, have been able to find like mentorship and leadership within your uh, group that you work closely with? Because I would say you're an early career policy scientist. So uh, yeah, what kind of, how have the relationships you, you think benefited your experience there so far? I know it's only been a few months. Yeah, it, it's been great to have, um, I have my mentor who's like my supervisor mm -hmm. and his title is climate change coordinator. So I'm kind of helping him, but also like have a couple of my own projects, but it's been great because um, we're actually like working together on a lot of things and he's a great mentor because he always checks in on me like after the week how are you doing oh. it's been, like a little crazy but want to make sure you're doing all right and it, that's been really nice to have and that's awesome 
the other fellows have also been great. We've been able to do virtual get-togethers, announce them in-person get-togethers for those who move to DC. And that's been great because to hear their experiences, it's like validating. You know, yeah. it's not like I'm the only one who's going crazy. <laughs> is, is everyone about the same age in the fellowship? I would say, so it's master's and PhD, about like half and half. So nice. I think I'm 26. I feel like I'm on the one of the younger or youngest age groups. So yeah, it's definitely a big group, but it kind of feels like we're all in the same or similar spots because we just are all fresh out of grad school or some people took a break from grad school to do the fellowship and then they're going to go back. Oh, cool. And it's all very collaborative, it sounds too, which is awesome. Yeah, it's cool to be able to, I got to work on projects with the other two Fish and Wildlife fellows. Um, there's other fellows, like alumni of the fellowship who work in the service. So we've been talking to them and they've been helping us out, like just giving us recommendations and sending us like jobs that we could apply to once the fellowship is over. Nice. Was it hard to transition kind of from like hard science doing your master's research into something that's more policy uh, focused? Yeah, definitely. I feel like the types of trainings that I'm doing now are like adaptive leadership and facilitating meetings and mm -hmm. communication. Like that's a whole different thing that I feel like sometimes maybe I should have thought about taking some of those types of courses when I was in grad school, because those are like really important skills Definitely. Um, that I'm just starting to like try to like hone in on now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no more multivariate statistics. Now you're learning how to be a leadership for <laughs> trainings. Yeah, it's it's very different. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What what's one of the cool lessons you can you can you might be able to recall from one of the uh trainings? Like for example, like adaptive leadership. Um do you have anything that sticks out to you as something that's really valuable and you're going to like carry with you? Yeah, there is um kind of we did a couple of I guess little practices dealing with certain types of conflict when you're working with um, other partners and other groups of people. And something that kind of stuck out to me mainly is you really have to spend time slowing down and considering the values and loyalties of the other groups that you're working with. And that really comes into play like with climate change. Like if you're talking Definitely. to a group yeah, you, you need to like be able to understand what's important to them and what's affecting their lives and why are they here and instead of just why are you here and what do you want to get out of it. Very beneficial sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially as you're dealing with so many different groups of people and different stakeholders. I really love that uh, there's a lot more attention going to Indigenous communities and the types of work that they're doing when it comes to the climate crisis. What types of, I guess, impacts would you say you've been able to become more familiar with in your role, um, especially when it comes to the different uh, demographics and groups of people that you work with? I think that we already had an idea about this, but for me, it's just kind of instilling within me that Indigenous communities, tribal communities, and underserved communities are the first um, to be affected by climate change and the most negatively affected just in terms of food scarcity and water quality issues and water scarcity, longer wildfire seasons, um, those sort of issues that are, are affecting everybody, but they're affecting those who depend on the land and the resources more. Mm -hmm. And the more that I've been able to educate myself about what the Indigenous communities and tribes have already been doing, 
um, in terms of climate change adaptation and mitigation, it's really like opened my eyes that they're not just like those early adopters of climate change adaptation. They're like the front runners and they've been using their own like traditional ecological knowledge to help manage these effects long before the United States government was really even on board with talking about climate change. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to learn from them and it's, it's going to be able to come from a place of I guess just mutual respect. Yeah, we have a lot to learn from them. I agree. Definitely, mm-hmm. and it's it's cool to see how much like before this like this climate crisis was really publicized. Um, they like have always really cared for their land and for their resources. Um, so you have to you have to get to a point where you're able to communicate climate change to different groups of people, right? And you said that you learned in your adaptive management course that you need to be considering their loyalties and their values and what types of skills, I guess, would you want other people to know when it comes to communicating climate change? Because one of the things I've learned is that we do really just need to be talking about it more. It should become part of everyday conversation so that it can be normalized and we can also center conversation around solutions. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to put myself in a position where I would be dealing with a climate change denier, I think, because I'm just in like a bubble. Mm-hmm. But I guess just like going back to what I was talking about in that um, adaptive leadership course, like if you're talking to somebody who's a member of a coastal community or a fishing community who relies on like tourism and um, fishing to like sustain their lives, you have to focus then on what are the climate change like economic impacts talk about like sea level rise the costs of dredging the shoreline to dump sands on it to protect the home that type of come at it from that type of angle and maybe like the water quality the way it's affecting the fish and like the health of the community instead of talking about the the birds and the pollinators like (laughs) you know like instead of focusing on something that maybe they don't really care about or know about it's I think it's all about shifting the conversation so you're focusing in on the people that you're talking to um, yeah that's the most important thing I think yeah it's like tweaking your message based on every different audience is like the most valuable thing definitely and the thing that's good about it is climate change affects every single person in every community so there is always like a way to get through to them I think yeah that's true I'm realizing like how important it is to say to use certain types of language when it comes to advancing climate solutions like for example referring to it as um, like a climate crisis or a climate emergency or also I think that when we were growing up or in undergraduate college we were talking about it using future tense and I, I'm trying to unlearn that and because it's it's very much happening now and it's happening to certain communities so much more severely now. Um, and so I'm trying to, com- I, I lean back on the ways I used to talk when I was first learning about these topics, but I'm, I'm feeling like a need to shift it just so that it can be more relevant and it can be more applicable to 2021, I guess. Yeah, I think that's really important too. I think there's some people who might um, not really quite be ready for the climate crisis conversation. Yeah, you know, it's a bit alarming. Might... <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, but yeah, I think that it's it's going to be constantly changing. I feel like the language has already changed a lot, just in terms of it's gone from resisting the change, building seawalls, like talking about resisting a coastal erosion, those type of things, to adapting. Like yeah. we have to relocate and 
retreat from the shoreline. Like I feel like there's been that shift in the conversation to accepting the changes and mm-hmm. adapting to them um, in recent years, which is necessary. Yeah, instead of fighting them. Mm-hmm. We That's see that a lot here in Hawaii. Do you have that? Um, do you feel like you see it in front of your face where you are now um, in the same way that you did when you lived here on Oahu? In terms of like climate impacts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's really hard to, it's totally different being in a city. Like now I think mm-hmm. more about the green spaces, like where are they? Yeah. <laughs> Why are they building all of these? hotels next to me and um, apartment complexes and malls and the Amazon headquarters is going right up. I, it's just very different. Um, it's, I mean, both issues are important, the issues in Hawaii and in cities um, like urban heat, but yeah, it's just totally different now. So I guess I'm starting to realize those impacts even more. I think accessibility to green spaces is so important in cities because they really are a place for you to like play and rest, but also just a place for you to remember, hey, I'm I'm in nature. Yeah, reconnect kind of, right? Yeah, I think we take it for granted living here. Definitely, everything's mm-hmm. so green, luckily. So we, when we talked a little bit about what you're working on now, you mentioned that you work in biotechnology. Is that, um, could you tell us a little bit about what biotech is and then how that's related to climate adaptations? Yeah, so I guess the easiest way to explain biotech is just using new technologies. So using technology to modify biology in in this sense, it's in a way that is going to help conserve a species okay. um, sense. somehow. Basically, those types of biotechnology solutions are becoming more and more needed. And it's important to help educate people of what they are, because it kind of could be scary, you know, when you just hear about a new technique that's editing a genome, like Mm -hmm. that could be a little bit intimidating for conservation biologists if they're not familiar with those types of techniques. So I've been learning a lot about different success stories, and I've been writing a lot of short informational reports on them to help inform managers. Um, So that's kind of what I've been doing and been able to work with a lot of cool people in Hawaii and like all over the country. So it's been really interesting. We're going to lean more heavily on biotech applications um, as we get a little bit more, I guess, desperate, so to speak, for solutions, right? Yeah, I think so. There's, There's two examples that I've been working on that I think are like perfect examples of this. One is the black-footed ferret, which is a native species to like the Great Plains of the United States. Um, they were presumed extinct twice because of disease and um, habitat destruction. Twice. They, yeah. So they found them again. They thought they were extinct. They found them again. They started a captive breeding program. But the thing with the captive breeding program is the genetic drift and genetic diversity just is getting so small mm-hmm. that it leads to inbreeding and there ended up only being about like seven germ lines left. So they, what they, what U.S. Fish and Wildlife along with partners such as Revive and Restore did is that they cloned the cells of a female ferret, a frozen cell from a female ferret that was alive about 30 years ago. They cloned this ferret. Now she is a healthy young adult parrot and her name is Elizabeth Ann and she's introducing all of this new genetic diversity to the population that will eventually be released they release um 
individuals every year. So that's something that's really cool. It's the first time that that technique has been used for endangered species. Am I the only one who just found out that we're still, that we're actively cloning animals? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, I thought it was just Dolly. Well, it's been, (laughs) yeah, it's been done uh, like in livestock and animal agriculture, I think a lot, but I don't think for endangered species, this is probably the first time that I could think of. Is that from like stem cells? Is that how cloning works? I would think. I'm trying to think. Largely to do with stem it's cells. It's the only process I understand. <laughs> yeah, I could. I, I could send you all the articles. Oh yeah. Honestly, I will read that. Yeah, we'll, 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 I'll do some research. I'll put a little insert so that people can know that <laughs> cloning is because that can be what you're saying. That can be scary to people to hear but mm-hmm. the technology is already here. And then you said um, another example, um, there, there's another example that came to mind when you talked about biotech applications. Yeah, so this one's really interesting. And I think that you guys will like it because that's with horseshoe crabs. I don't know if you're a horseshoe <laughs> crab fans, but we are, I love are. them. <laughs> and um, so obviously like a lot of people know they've been around since before the dinosaurs are just like living fossils and Mm -hmm. they have blue blood. They have a enzyme in their blood that uh, a coagulating enzyme that reacts to like bacteria by clotting. So the pharmaceutical industry has been using their blood for years in order to like test, test the sterility of like vaccines and different drugs to make sure there's no bacteria in them. So you know, they're collected, they're, and they're ended up bleeding in like a facility, and then they try to release them, but it doesn't really work. A lot of the times they already die. And yeah, sounds problematic. They go through like a lot of trauma, obviously. So there has been a synthetic alternative to this enzyme that has been created that can, that doesn't have to de- deal with like any horseshoe crabs. You could totally just create it in a lab that does the exact same thing, but it's going wow. through the process now of getting like approved by the FDA. And yeah, but that's something that is maybe a little bit down the line, but has been developed. So that's pretty exciting. So we that's can stop cool. using horseshoe yeah, crabs. Yeah, the crabs. They're yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the word like biotechnology can feel confusing or difficult to understand, but the way you simplified it was really valuable. So thank you for doing that. So we obviously had a huge administration change and you came in right at the beginning of that. Um, and now climate action is everywhere in the news. It's so such a nice sigh of relief. And I guess one of the questions that came to us when we were preparing for this episode was, what are you most excited for, for you're in the in, in the thick of it into the thick of it oh um i think that's the most exciting thing is it's really like just reassuring i guess to hear these types of conversations finally happening and and be allowed to say them mm-hmm. yeah and climate change is one of the biden administration's pillars and so that's like that's something that means that's one of the four like main focuses is like COVID, the economy, mm-hmm. um, equity and climate change. So that's just like huge because I, that's never happened before. It's never been like the center of the conversation. So I think that's really exciting. And the fact that we're able to like jump back into international um, collaborations and communication about the topic. And there's also 30 by 30 and that's really exciting. So yeah, everything, I probably said exciting like a million times, but it's, it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I saw yeah. that, um, Hawaii is one of the first states to try to implement the 30 by 30 
like on as far as on the timeline and I saw something yesterday that like 1.4 million dollars was just allocated to a bunch of different organizations Hawaii based organizations to implement 30 by 30 so I feel like there's just so much momentum around all of it um everyone can participate in conservation if they want to um, in 2021 yeah and it's like a tangible goal like you could see it and like visualize it getting to it might be very challenging but you can track it yeah so what advice would you have for anyone who's like interested in participating in conservation for oceans or really just in climate action in general when it comes to policy I I guess I would just give like a big shout out for the two experiences that I had that kind of led me into this path. One being the Holling Scholarship. That's something you apply for when you're a sophomore in college. So if you if you think you are interested in any type of any type of science, really, or environmental science, meteorology, marine science, you can apply to this and get that summer long experience. And then you end in DC and get to present your summer research or whatever project you work on. And you get to meet people throughout NOAA and you get to have this big network. And I think that that's really important because I still am connected with those folks that I was able to work for during the summer, but also like the other interns and the Canal Fellowship. I would definitely recommend to anybody who's interested in getting into policy who's in grad school right now, because it's, it's something that, I mean, I was a little nervous, obviously coming from Hawaii, like jumping into a completely different realm, but. In the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's really, it's really rewarding. It's been a very, very challenging, wonderful experience so far. So yeah, for anybody interested in like science policy, I think it's a great path to go down. Not the only path, but it's worked for me so far. (laughs) Another thing I would say is just get involved early. There's so many different things you can do in policy, even without a lot of experience. Like you can testify for bills that you agree with, or you can attend budget meetings or council meetings and really get your voice heard. So just get involved and the earlier, the better. So um, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that there's been like a huge social shift when it comes to talking about these subjects and not just climate action and marine conservation, but also like dismantling systems that um, perpetuate these types of like environmentally destructive, I guess, topics or ways of living. And so I always find myself when I'm telling people to take action, just like call your elected officials, you need to, it's one of the best things you can do. Do you have any input of how we can make calling your elected officials trendy? That's like a really good question. I feel like I've seen it a lot where it's basically like, click on this link. It is already set up for you. All you do is click on it and it sends it to your local representative and you, well, you email it to them and then, um, you pretty much don't have to do anything else. And that seems like it's great for people who are like really just on their phone, but see something that they care about and they could just click, click, send a message to contact your local representative. But I guess incentives, you have a lot of followers. You could say, show me the receipts. (laughs) Might win a prize. A prize incentives. Getting giveaways going. <laughs> giveaways so that people reach their officials. She has a point though with the template because I've done that. Yeah, and people then like it re- easy. So, but my understanding is you, you if if an inbox is inundated with the exact same wording, it can be flagged as like a you know it's it's not necessarily has holds the same weight as if mm. you personalize it and show that it's important to you. But I do I, think that anything counts. Okay. I get that some some messages may be stronger than others. 
but if they're inundated with the same thing and also have i'll put it on the 2020 list i'll yeah, make, make a template <laughs> <laughs> for people to obviously um to very easily send the email if you want to dive deeper into contacting elected officials we actually have a sweet how-to guide and some guidelines and tips and tricks in our sustainability ebook which is available now on the website okay funny. and then um we finish every episode with this question so you are an expert in field that is that is you anita harrington an expert in climate action and now policy so what do you think the biggest issue facing our planet is we normally say oceans but you are working in for the whole planet that we live on so what do you think the biggest issue is i think i have like two answers to this if it's okay we want one that's, that's coming good from like more of like the human perspective of well i i guess i'll just say if something that i'm kind of fearful of is that people will eventually think that it doesn't matter and that nothing that we do will have any change because we're already in like a pretty dire situation mm -hmm. and i feel like i just i wish people knew that we're already we're able to see how clearly that humans have impacted the planet in a detrimental way and i think that that there's a way we could turn this around still um because we already know how big of an impact we have you know what if we change that and have a positive impact there's there's that so that's definitely something that i think about like i'm just i'm hoping that people don't think it's too late so there's no point in changing because there's nothing mm -hmm. i can do um but yeah i think the other thing is just over exploitation and overuse i would say of the resources which is so broad but mm -hmm. kind of ties into like you know um overfishing um and deforestation it's just it's just overuse and, and exploitation we can't keep going down the path we're going yeah. and it's pretty obvious that something we need to shift like our life lifestyles if we're going to turn it around yeah so both those are amazing i love that you did a general one and more of a specific one too so what would you say um is the single best thing that someone listening to this who maybe feels inspired by your interview and they want to participate what is the single best thing that they could do i would say like don't i, I know that you introduced me as an expert but i'm nowhere near even close to being an expert <laughs> and you could still talk about these things so you don't have to know everything if you know something you could talk about it you know like you could educate somebody who then doesn't know that one fact that you know about climate change. Like, I just, I think that that's something that I would say and that we are going to have to make changes, but they don't have to be scary, big changes, like very small changes um, in by a huge group of people is gonna make a difference. Like one thing that I suggest to my family is when you're grocery shopping, just try to cut out one product that is, harmful to the environment. Like just look at the ingredients to see if there's palm oil in during this grocery trip, something like that. Like just make that like tiny change and eventually maybe they'll turn into wonderful, sustainable people like you two are who are <laughs> doing everything right. <laughs> I wouldn't say we're doing everything right. I'm like saying on this plat on this new microphone that we bought new. But no, that's a great, that's a great point because if you get into the habit of say, looking at palm oil and the ingredients and then that becomes easy and it becomes part of your routine and part of your mm -hmm. habit and then you're ready for something new in a little bit and that's mm -hmm. 
not overwhelming. That's just an easy shift. Like Alex is a great living, breathing example because he's not a vegan, but he eats less meat than most people that I know. And so it's about like finding balance, I think. And always like working yeah. on the next stepping stone moving forward. Yeah. Being committed to improving. Yeah. What are you committed to improving right now, Anita? Ooh, let's see. Not buying new clothes. I'm trying to do a lot of thrift shopping. Nice. That's like one little thing, which is also fun. So it's like a fun challenge of habit. Um, let's see. I, I'm carless right now. Nice. Oh, you're carless. I, we're also carless. Oh, really? Yeah, unfortunately. But we're getting an electric car, which is cool too. We're getting a leaf. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Electric cars are exciting, but so is systemic change surrounding environmental issues. This is your sign to call your elected official and start the trend, or sign that petition you see on the internet. The world doesn't change without pressures from its people, and our time is now. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Sustainability in the Sea. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a review, share with a friend, or subscribe and download this episode. Sustainability in the Sea is a production of the Conservationist Collective, and you can connect with us on our Instagram, our website, or our TikTok. We'll see you next week, but until then, this has been another episode of Sustainability in the Sea.